This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alison Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined by my colleagues, Ed Reed and Andrew Dykes. And we're going to kick off this week with the terrible news of a fatal incident off the coast of Norway on Wednesday nights. We talk a lot about HSE in this podcast, and our thoughts are very much with the victims and their families. Now, we don't have the full circumstances. It may be some time until that emerges. So we're going to talk through what we do know. Andrew, what are what are the facts as they stand at the moment? Um, so we know as of uh, as of Thursday that a woman in her 60s has died and five others have been injured. Uh, this is a result of a Sikorsky S-92 helicopter ditching into the sea near the Norwegian island of Sotra at around 7.30pm on Wednesday. Uh, it was operated by Bristow uh, on behalf of Econor and it was taking part in a training exercise involving a, uh, a cargo ship uh, on behalf of Equinor. So we've uh, we picked up from last night that Norwegian media have confirmed this was uh, a woman and, and five men on board. Uh, she worked as a nurse for Equinor, and uh, we under- understand that her next of kin has been notified uh, again as, as of last night. As it stands, um, we believe the other five people uh, all worked for Bristow, and they were transported to the Haukeland University Hospital in Bergen. Uh, they have various levels of injuries. I think we believe one is in a critical condition, um, and the others. Uh, sort of slightly more minor injuries, uh, again, as of uh, most up-to-date information. Equinor uh, put out a statement, I think, c- confirming the incident on uh, on Wednesday night and then later a statement on Thursday morning after the news that uh, one person had perished. Chief Executive Anders Oppedal described the crash as a deeply tragic incident. Uh, he said the thoughts are with their families, their close one and the others affected. It was some interesting operational uh, effects as a result. Equinor obviously paused um, their S-92 flights uh, for the remainder of that evening, I think most of yesterday, and we're still following up on whether that uh, that pause remains today. There were a few other uh, operators that followed suit. I believe Acker BP paused S-92 flights uh, in Norway uh, for the same reasons, and uh, a few in the UK as well we can get onto in a minute. As you said, Elsa, you know, the cause of the accident uh, isn't yet known. Equinor and Bristow and the Norwegian authorities are all liaising together. Um, we understand there are a lot of people on the ground. I think Norwegian accident investigators have already been dispatched. They're going to uh, Bristow's base in Bergen, I believe, and also to the, the crash site itself. They are currently working to recover the wreckage. Um, yesterday in a police uh, press conference, the police district chief of the local police, Gustav Landro, told Norwegian media he believes that the Black Box is likely to be recoverable. Um, but it does sound like high weather, um, high winds and, and bad weather are potentially uh, hampering those efforts. The wreckage itself, I think, is going to be transported to, or very likely to be transported to a military base, according to Norwegian accident investigators. Um, we understand, uh, as of the Foreign Office told us yesterday, that there are no British nationals involved and that uh, everyone involved was uh, Norwegian. Yeah, it's a it's a horrible, horrible kind of worst nightmare stuff hearing about this. It really it shows the risks that you know workers are are taking in this industry. It you know remains a dangerous a dangerous business at times, uh, and and really so horrible to hear this going on, and and that really has been the kind of the tenor of what we've heard from the aviation industry. We had I think I think in America um, this week the the global industry forum. Um, Expo 20, I think it's HAI Heli Expo 2024, and obviously they opened that and got a statement here from Francois Lassel um, on their board of directors, you know, started that on the somber note, acknowledging them, offering thoughts and prayers uh, to the families involved. Uh, the the BALPA union, the helicopter pilots union, but it obviously covers um, workers in the industry as well more broadly, uh, they've suspended strike action in Aberdeen, uh, Sumbara and Norwich, I believe, um, 
as a mark of respect out of what's been going on. Um, just very quickly, Andrew, you know, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, the we've had some flights paused as a result of this. Um, we, we don't know to how long that's going to go on for. Um, I suppose we should touch on, this is a search and rescue helicopter, as you say, but nonetheless, Norway remains quite reliant, very reliant on the S-92 um, as a helicopter type. There's not really many others out there, save for some news we had from Equinor this morning. So I don't know, a bit of a variety in the market would be helpful, um, but we should probably make the point that these contracts were announced or agreed well before this accident. Can I can I ask a, a quick question just about that that sort of S ninety two? I mean, obviously, I know that some of the helicopters have like a sort of a reputation as being, you know, not uh, not not so good. Is it, are there been problems with the the S ninety twos in the past? Is this is this a sort of a problem that's recurred, or is this or is this a new sort of development? So I think I, I can probably take that one, Andrew. Um, so look, um, the the, sto- the 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 history here um, as regards the helicopter market is we had the the Super Puma helicopter um, used quite wide-rangely um, across the UK and Norway until, well, there has been a series of fatal accidents involving that helicopter type. Uh, and then on the fatal crash in Churoy in Norway in 2016, that saw that helicopter all but um, exit the market in Norway. I think they have maybe one on the go for super long-range flights. But in the main, the S-92 replaced the Super Puma. And Unlike the UK, where there is quite a lot of variety in our fleets, the S-92 remains dominant. Um, but Norway, they, they use it almost exclusively. So what we've seen recently, though, um, off the back of COVID, for example, and you know, more, further demand in flights um, off the back of that, you know, the, the economy is recovering. Um, we've seen things like spare parts issues arise for the S-92 and manufacturing not really catching up in time. Um, to service that, and there's been you know reports of you know we will need to have these x number of choppers grounded in order to um, in order you know in order to keep the logistics going and that. So it's been quite a long time, and, and the unions in Norway have said for a long time, you know we must have more diversity in our fleet because if anything were to go wrong and there was any call to ground the S92 for any kind of extended period of time, then obviously that would cause major logistical issues. Now, we don't know whether that would be the case here. As I say, it was a search and rescue S92, you know, not necessarily on the same kind of flight paths, uh, et cetera, as a, a typical kind of oil and gas um, logistics helicopter. But, you know, the full circumstances remain to be seen. But nonetheless, you know, I guess it's fair to say that the Norwegian market's been really reliant on the S92. Um, and we've seen t- just today some contracts announced from Equinor to bring in other helicopter types um, to the market, which will offer a little bit of variety. I expect that that issue will remain you know, the case in terms of that dominance of the S92. But um, but yeah, that, that goes some way. But again, that was announced before, or agreed, I should say, before the events of Wednesday night unfolded and uh, from from the uk perspective as well you know as alistair says we're, we're slightly less uh, reliant on it but it still makes up i mean just under half of of the fleet as uh, the data that we have from from 2022 it's also i think um the the designation of it I, I'm, I'm not an aircraft expert so i'm not i'm not down on the specifics but it's the only kind of heavy class helicopter that's operating in the segment i believe as opposed to some of the leonardos and the airbus models which are, are classed as medium i think based on on passenger capacity and, and um distance um, so, yeah, there was a brief pause on on operations for for some heli operators and and some 
North Sea platforms in the UK yesterday. I, as we understand it, that was uh, completely precautionary and, and uh, at the discretion of, of those operators. We believe it's ended now and flights are largely proceeding as normal in the UK sector. Uh, Norway remains to be seen. Okay, thank you, Andrew. And for more on this, check out our webpage, energyvoice.com. Next, we'll move on over to, well, Orsted and some interesting messages on inflation and floating wind. The cost of polluting is increasingly high for companies covered by emissions trading schemes. New sectors, new regulations and tougher rules will transform the industry in the UK and Europe in the upcoming decades. Navigate the emissions trading market with the support of our experienced team. Virtus Environmental Finance, emissions trading in safe hands. Okay, Ed, uh, checking in on International Energy Week this week. Uh, tell us what you've been hearing. Yeah, so I I, I went along to uh, to uh, Green Park on, on on Tuesday morning to, uh, to 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 catch up with International Energy Week. It was uh, it was one of those things. So I was, if you recall, I was there in October uh, for uh, another conference, the Energy Intelligence Forum. Uh, where I had to stand outside for five hours. Uh, <laughs> thanks to Greta Thunberg. Thanks, Greta. Uh, fortunately, that didn't happen uh, this Tuesday. There were about five protesters outside, uh, but uh, fortunately, they uh, did not uh, prevent me from entering. So that was my that, that that really got the day off to a much more positive start than uh, than than my last uh, trip over there in October. Um, so, but so yeah. So once I got in, um, it was it was it was uh, obviously a very interesting and wide ranging conversation. A lot of sort of uh, plan, you know, talking around sort of the energy transition, which seems to be the sort of the, the, the theme for uh, International Energy Week. And um, so, Orsted's uh, interim COO, in fact, the day that he was speaking, uh, Andy Brown, he. The, they, they announced uh, uh, his replacement. So it was very much a sort of a, 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 an end of the era, I suppose, for Andy Brown in some regards, although he is kind of going on to become, I think, deputy chair at Orsted. So still sort of within within, within the tent. I was going to ask, is he going to like throw a grenade as he heads out the door? But if he's yeah, still in the running for deputy chair, then... Uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. He's he's still facing, I think he's they, they've got an AGM on, I think, March the 5th. So presumably didn't want to uh, didn't want to undercut or said too much and and you know he, he was he was he was very diplomatic, um, but it, it was it was it was really fascinating because obviously he was also is kind of clearly you know the, the kind of I suppose it really led that charge into sort of offshore wind in many ways didn't it? it was kind of the poster child of of a sort of a world you know sort of post oil, and then you know they they ran into those sort of financial difficulties and and then then they kind of essentially kind of rode back a lot of their big plans they wrote down uh, some of those massive projects particularly in the US. And so, 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 so Andy Brown was kind of speaking about those those, those plans and about the ways in which, essentially, um, the offshore wind industry had been sort of essentially lulled into a, a, sen- a false sense of security. Um, so, with interest rates being extremely low, and 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 that sort of service, the sort of value chain supply sector, kind of essentially. Um, willing to make a lot of sacrifices in order to win work. Obviously, that was kind of boom times for uh, for, for kind of renewable energy companies like Orsted. And then obviously, all, uh, interest rates rising, the uh, supply chains, you know, sort of, you know, really starting to sort of push back in terms of some of those kind of onerous contracts. Uh, and then and it feels like the sort of the, the, the kind of the, the, the balance has shifted and it's kind of obviously thrown a kind of a, a big question mark over the sector. 
So uh, as a result of that, you know, Orsted has, um, has, has has kind of cut it back, cut back its plans. So it's now aiming for, I think, 35 to 38 uh, gigawatts of, of, of offshore wind by 2030, which is still a lot of power, right? It's still a sort of a substantial contribution. Obviously, that's globally, so that, you know, you know balances out. But it, it had been aiming to build uh, 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. That is obviously, if I'm not... I think I think I'm right in saying that's also the UK's target for for, for 2030, which you know obviously is another question. Are we going to make it? Uh, it seems uh, increasingly unlikely that we're going to hit that target. And Orsted has also agreed that it's not going to hit its target. So I mean, I think that that was it. it kind of really stood out as as a sort of a, a kind of a, an, an interesting diagnosis. And I think also um, the other thing that kind of really stood out about Orsted's change of plans was maybe it's uh, a kind of a growing question mark about floating wind um so there was, there was a question from the audience and, and and andy brown you know explained that essentially for Orsted they felt that the technology wasn't quite ready as yet um so he said something like it was not going to be sort of a 2020s technology it was going to be a 2030s technology which obviously is going to have an impact on i suppose the areas in which you can install those kind of facilities right i think you know obviously the sort of shallower waters you need for uh, fixed bottom versus you know the, the sort of the floating uh, facilities which you can install pretty much anywhere so yeah it was it was a really fascinating insight into into, into some of Orsted's thinking the floating wind point is is interesting because it kind of mirrors I mean, like mad snipper ceo of Orsted made a similar point that yeah it's uh, it's definitely moving to the right I think uh, a conversation I had this week with with someone that's working kind of across the, the uh, wind space uh, globally was saying something similar that they they reckon that South Korea is is probably the the best market for floating wind as it stands because they can kind of serialize that production they have all, everything in terms of the yards mm. the capability the infrastructure and he was saying the, the first sort of large scale ones are probably going to be there but you know the intog is still you know really good kind of qualification period for for the technology so i mean will we see some intog stuff before the end of the decade we don't know but <laughs> but uh you know hope uh, it's still good that you know i think uh even with a bit of moving around in project schedules i think it's still a very exciting technology that we'll hopefully kind of see 29 30 and, and intog i think is still going to be a really crucial kind of peg in that journey right yeah. it's it's this testing ground for as you say, this slightly futuristic technology. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, Intog always was meant to be a, a stepping stone, absolutely, um, to Scotwind. But let's not forget Scotwind. I mean, I think they were talking at one point of having kind of those projects really underway towards the end of, of this decade. And if, you know, if we're talking about a pushback for Intog, then I think we can certainly expect a pushback at the larger scale floating wind. And not to bring everything back to politics and the North Sea and that, but, you know, we are talking about, you know, Policies that will, you know, see a pre uh, an end to oil and gas production more quickly in the North Sea. Clearly, areas like Aberdeen that have subsea expertise, um, buoyancy and mooring expertise, really uh, gearing up for the floating wind opportunity. And we see, you know, big wind developers talking about deprioritizing floating wind. Um, you know, it does tell you a little bit about that energy transition picture, perhaps not quite as imminent as hoped. And, you know, again, it kind of points to this lack of a joined up uh, thinking of everyone kind of working off the same page, because it seems like, you know, politicians and developers perhaps aren't on that same page. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, I suppose, so I, I also spoke to uh, Hussein Almir, uh, Mazdar's kind of uh, global offshore wind director this week. 
and and he was really sort of stressing the the kind of the importance of the kind of the entire ecosystem right that kind of the combination of the kind of the conditions for construction but also the sort of the infrastructure and the grid and all of these things kind of need to be in place don't they to kind of you know allow the the, the kind of the industry to kind of move forwards as, as seamlessly as possible and it's at that point i suppose you know you can look at say south korea and look at sort of south korea's obvious you know sort of construction expertise the shipyards that sort of massive amount of capacity that, that south korea's got and it, obviously it feels like there's a kind of a real opportunity for you know a country like south korea to move ahead and i suppose on the other hand there's you know the 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 us which has this extraordinary sort of governmental support the inflation reduction act but because of the Jones Act and various others, there are sort of controls on sort of local content. So essentially, you can't uh, you can't use non-US ships with uh, f- essentially foreign nationals on the ship in you know to, to to install these kind of facilities. So it's it's this kind of this question of all the kind of the the, the factors need to be in place for, for for these plans to move forward. And obviously, I suppose that's that's the kind of the big challenge, isn't it, for Scotland? One one thing to put the uh, the ball, I suppose, back in Arsenal's court is that last night um, New York did award its sort of next uh, PPAs as part the uh, contracts as part of its latest offshore wind auction, and Equinor and Ersted were successful. So this is the sort of renegotiated ones that everyone thought might have to be cancelled. Mm. Um, I think involving right down so that it's the one or nine hundred twenty four megawatt sunrise wind, which is uh, Ersted's and Equinor's eight hundred ten megawatt Empire wind have been brought forward for contracts. They've uh, renegotiated. Uh, with higher rates so uh, i saw michael liebreich tweeting this morning that we're back we're <laughs> we're so back i mean I, I think i think the key there is obviously the higher rates isn't it right uh, yes essentially essentially you know austin equinor bp those those you know had made those commitments particularly in the us and that you know and they just they just couldn't make the numbers work and i suppose that was the thing right if 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 they can get sort of sufficient sort of flexibility from governments or you know, sort of local uh, authorities to kind of you know you know change the prices. Then obviously there is that sort of price at which things can work. But it's those kind of assumptions, and and you know obviously those kind of questions around pre FID commitments around kind of you know kind of locking in locking in prices, and you know all these kind of you know sort of all these all these plates spinning at the same time and trying to get them to kind of you know kind of coincide and, and, and come together at the right time. Obviously, it's been a challenge, and I, I, I guess you know. Unfortunately, it's a sort of a learning process for Austin, and that's why they had to have such massive write downs. Do you reckon, though, that this this it brings to an end their six months of sort of sheer horror? <laughs> is the ship being righted? I mean, I think that's certainly the kind of the drive, isn't it? Right? They've got like a whole new, fresh set of execs. They've, uh, you know, they are, yeah. So, I mean, I think you know that's, that's that's clearly the plan. I mean, I think obviously that kind of you know part and parcel of that is is those kind of you know new contract terms and. And I suppose being a bit more scrupulous about, you know, do the numbers work for this? Let's not just go for, you know, 50 gigawatts because we think 50 gigawatts is a nice number. Big Maybe number. it's not the number that's going to work for you. So, so, you know, it sounds it sounds a little bit, just reading through the article, and, you know, it sounds a little, and, you know, oil and gas are used to these, um, you know, supply chain issues. We're learning about it. Reading it, it sounded a bit like, not to be simplistic or, you know, it sounds a bit like sunshine and rainbows so far and the offshore wind sector kind of growing up out of that nascent stage. I'm just wondering, you know, will there be a bit more cynicism, you know, more scrupulous um, points from them going forward? I'm just kind of, it, it brought to my mind these COP27 and COP28 New York Times front pages from Orsted. Uh, and obviously, as you've alluded to, the last six months or so have been pretty dreadful. I'm just wondering, you know, will there be more kind of cynicism in the offshore? I mean, I hope not, but, you know, clearly, as you say, big targets have been announced and things are getting pushed back. And, 
yeah, I just wonder whether uh, things might get a little bit toned down uh, going forward. It, I mean, it, it it feels sort of inevitable, doesn't it? I mean, I think, you know, that's kind of part of that dynamic process with, uh, with the sort of the supply chain is obviously a, a, a bit more recognition, I suppose, from both sides about what is needed to make these projects work. Um, and I think you know there is uh, there is a lack of capacity um, and essentially some degree of you know call it call it realism or call it cynicism um, is 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 probably needed, particularly after that sort of the the, the breathless excitement of uh, sort of what sort of twenty twenty. It seems to also be that you know they have definitely pulled back from some of the more emerging markets. You know I think uh, exited Norway or they're certainly said they're not going to kind of bid in the upcoming Norway rounds. A few other markets and, and obviously with that, I think, has come redundancies across the group uh, as part of this kind of rationalizing. But certainly, yeah, you're right, it's a bit more of a focus, a little bit less kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff and a little bit more mm. hard numbers feels like the uh, the name of the game, certainly until 2025, when they may resume dividends <laughs> for their uh, weary investors. <laughs> <laughs> On that happy note, okay, well, thank you. Thank you, Ed. We'll go from uh, vessel shortages to skills shortages after this. Energy Voice leads the global energy conversation, which is why we're excited to introduce our newest offering, eForward. eForward is the essential and exclusive community of senior North Sea leaders driving the movement to secure clean energy. The energy transition is not just a climate issue, but an economic imperative. We have a leading position in this race, and eForward can help you take advantage in a discrete environment where thought leaders and recognized experts can collaborate on moving energy forward. This is the specialist membership designed exclusively for North Sea innovators, offering a focused program of events, valuable data-driven insight, and an exclusive digital hub. This is where you can set the agenda and shape the energy transition. If you're one of Energy's forward thinkers, it's time you joined us. Visit eforward.energy, that's E-F-W-D dot energy, to learn more and to join this exclusive community. Okay, so we had our Future North Sea events in Aberdeen this weekend. A part of that was focused around skills, the talent conundrum in the North Sea. And that was kind of linked to a story we wrote this week about the drop-off. Of, I mean, much of that was discussing you know, perceptions around the industry, career pathways, and certainly you know, the narrative of you know, dirty oil or sunset industry, et cetera, et cetera. And, and lots of really good discussion around engagement with schools, with universities, um, and so on. But it was linked to a story we wrote this week, um, which kind of, kind of exemplifies this, um, the collapse of, of geoscience skills in the UK, this group of experts um, called the Subsea Task Force, a not-for-profit group, uh, have produced this report and said that more than four, that we've seen a, a first a drop off of first-year undergrads of more than forty percent in just a few years uh, for geoscience. So you know, geoscientists, you know, certainly that has historically been linked to. Um, extraction of hydrocarbons, absolutely, but there's also a, a very firm need for, you know, mapping out the seabed and understanding the geology of the seabed when it comes to things like carbon capture and storage, and indeed uh, offshore wind, which we've talked about already on the pod. So why is it happening? Um, we've we've had, you know, I guess what we've seen in the picture of recent times is there's been a number of closures of geoscience degrees, petroleum geoscience degrees at Imp- Imperial College London. Um, Earlier in February, we saw Aberdeen University having to make wide kind of scale cuts and their geoscience department was ordered to trim its staff by a third for next summer. So it's, it's a really stark picture. And yeah, this task force is kind of arguing that 
if we don't have geoscientists, we're just not going to be able to hit net zero because we need people to service these projects. Um, so why is it happening? Well, we've got a, a confluence of kind of factors here. Some of the ones that have been put out, though, is you know, simplistic narratives from, from politicians and indeed from factions of the university kind of academia community. Um, you know, we, we've seen, you know, there are factions of, of universities that have just totally turned away on oil and gas and it's kind of not injecting any nuance about what these degrees could be used for, right? But it's not just that, you know, obviously job security is a big part of this, uh, a lack of career appeal. Um, we spoke to someone who said that this people were frankly treated, you know, very poorly during the last downturn and we have certainly seen subsurface jobs exploration jobs be cut. Um, so there's a lack of career appeal there in, in that regard. There's a problem around the current workforce aging out through retirements. Again, we've talked about the climate change narrative, the encroachment of AI and machine learning. Now, we talk a lot about technology um, coming into, kind of be a way to engage the industry. I think, I think that's probably right. Um, and we heard from our panel uh, at Future North Sea this week that AI is only as good as the, I guess, the human that you know writes the question or the coding or whatever. I, I don't understand it, um, but yeah, <laughs> you, you take my meaning. So you know, there's a perception problem around. I guess older professionals leaving, millennials don't want to join the industry, and uh, as the STF chair, Graham Goffey, put it, the taint of the extractive sector seems to be kind of missed and, and this mis misdirected university campus lobbying is really part of the part of the problem. The other fragment of this is to do with, I guess, university funding and, and the government comes into that to a degree. Uh, and the STF told us that they spoke to uh, a director level civil servant in the UK government uh, recently who told them they do not see the benefit in geoscience in reaching net zero, you know, despite, as we've said, applicable skills, carbon capture, offshore wind, geothermal, nuclear waste sequestration. So deeply concerning stuff. Um, the, the entire kind of, we, we put it out and the reaction from kind of the, the geoscience community was was one of, in, in, in unison, I would say, they, they all seem to be recognizing what's going on. Um, some of them are quite shocked to see just how bad it seems to be getting. Um, but this is a you know a real, real tangible example of where you know your words have have real meaning, and if you're putting out this narrative of you know oil bad, um, then there's going to be a, tr a real knock-on impact to net zero and to energy transition projects. Did your uh, did did the people at the event have any sort of ideas about how to how to tackle things? I mean, I, obviously, it, it certainly sounds like a sort of a diagnosis of a sort of a problem coming. But is it um, were, were there any thoughts about how to improve things? Yeah, I mean, there there was so much discussed at the event, but certainly um, some of the things that have been mooted in terms of what to do. I mean, certainly again, that university funding piece is part of it. I mean, company internships, additional support for geoscience education long-term recruitment and retention and training policies again going back to that job security piece you know why would i want to go to a job in you know geoscience if i think i'm going to made, get made redundant in the next downturn you know i think i think the short-termism the boom and bust of this industry in particular has been a real issue for this sector and i think they need to find some way to get around that you know because it's 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 untenable and, and you can absolutely see that through line between as i say the waves of redundancies and the perception of the industry now you know it certainly you know constructing a, a positive narrative about the, the positive future role of the sector now 
in terms of like internships and, and, and mentorships and that, will companies sponsor these during a period of fiscal uncertainty in the UK? Good question. And yes, certainly uh, it comes back to that political piece. St stability, fiscal stability, predictable tax regimes, once again comes back as one of the main kind of asks of, of uh, probably a, a segment of the industry we don't hear too much from, but everyone is singing from the same hymn sheet on that front as well. I think the, the point on boom and bust is, is really salient. I think a lot of the younger people that I know that have gone through that process are kind of working in slightly different roles that are maybe adjacent to energy, but a lot of them have, you know, petroleum geoscience background and, and I think would have happily gone on to a career in that world where that pathway available to them at the time that they were kicking off their careers. So I think that's definitely part of it. I would say as well, I wonder how much the discipline itself is is so closely tied to petroleum and oil and gas industries and whether actually a bit of distance from that would would do a great deal of good also to kind of broaden the, the horizon of the field. You know, I know a lot of geoscience uh, degrees and things that are kind of seen as pathways into oil and gas, very specifically and very narrowly, and they will equip you with the skills for that. But as you say, Alistair, you know, geothermal, we're going to need so much more on, on heat networks, on heat exploration for, for these kind of resources. And, uh, you know, are they as, uh, as widely publicized? Are they as kind of... Uh, interrogated as much on these types of courses or are these courses seen very much as you know a bit of a cookie cutter thing into getting your, your foot in the door for an oil and gas career that as we say is, is maybe not kind of the the sleep streamlined pathway that it was 20 years ago yeah absolutely well i mean it's it's never going to happen talk about pie in the sky stuff but imagine 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 if orsted did use its new york times front page to we need geoscience uh, skills for our floating or offshore winds you know um that that's not going to happen but you know certainly companies like that shouting about it and and yes maybe some distance from the oil and gas sector because it has it has absolutely been very firmly tied to it but you know certainly two two things are true at once here they're, they're, they they need oil and gas. They need geoscience for oil and gas. They absolutely need oil and gas for these energy transition skills as well. And um, yeah, it needs it needs someone to to shout about it. I think because um, you know if the industry, I mean, it's it's right at the start of the journey in terms of getting projects going. This this geoscience piece. But uh, if we don't have them, if you don't have the skills to service them, then there's another you know potential bottleneck that that could come up. So. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll be following that and all of the stories we've uh, talked about today online. So for now, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Andrew and to Ed for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com. Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.